Welcome to the Manoa 100 Centenary Podcast, part of the Decade of Centenaries program. In the first in our series, we look at the events of May of 1921. I'm Sinead McCool, and I ask you to join me as we meet some of Ireland's memory keepers, as we seek out the stories of eight women who were elected to represent the Irish people in May of 1921. As we recall the events of 100 years ago, a newly partitioned country, as reality sets in, a border in which individual farms are being divided, two elections took place in May of 21. On the 13th of May, elections were held for the second Dáil Éireann, which was still a prescribed gathering, as Ireland was still ruled by the British government. Six women were elected, unopposed. Mrs. Margaret Pierce, Mrs. Kathleen Clark, Mrs. Kate O'Callaghan, Miss Mary McSweeney, Dr. Ada English, and Constance Demarkovich. On the 24th of May, the elections for the Northern Parliament took place, and two women were elected, Mrs. Julia McMordy and Mrs. Deera Chichester. In the same way as elections happen today, candidates were put forward, some are well-known and some are less well-known. Just as in the present time, political events take place against the backdrop of people's lives. Their day-to-day concerns are the same as now. Housing, health, jobs, the education and welfare of children. Were those issues important to the women who were elected? Were they elected because of their public profiles? Were they involved in the major events of their day? Ireland had experienced years of upheaval. The Irish population had undergone years of war, eight years of war in fact. The Great War, we now know as the First World War, and in Ireland at the same time there was the 1916 Rising, which was followed by a campaign of independence, which later became known as the War of Independence. Were the female candidates all women whose lives had been affected by those events? How large a part they played, I will have to go and find out. Where would it be best for me to start my journey? Before I do that, it would be important to know who these women are. I wonder what is the best way to do it. I know, picture an election flyer coming through your letterbox. You may or may not know the name of the candidate. On this document, there are a few lines about them. The biographical information is brief, the essence of them and their contribution. Just four or five lines to encourage you to cast your vote. In May 1921, Margaret Pierce was 64 years old, a widow for 21 years. She is best known as the mother of two of the men executed, the leader of the Rising, her eldest son, Patrick Henry Pierce, and her other son, William, known as Willie. He was also executed for his part in the 1916 Rising. How much of this would she have told the public? Her age would not have been made public. I'm sure she would not even have mentioned her maiden name, Brady. It's probably correct to say that there was little else the voters needed to know about Margaret Pierce other than she was the mother of the leader of the 1916 Rising. The Proclamation of Independence was most associated with her son, the trained lawyer, schoolteacher, writer, scholar, poet. Her son wrote several poems where he spoke in her voice, The Mother Speaks and The Mother. I do not grudge them, Lord. I do not grudge my two strong sons that I have seen go out to break their strength and die. They and a few in bloody protest for a glorious thing. On my journey, I want to find out about her, 
not through the lens of her son's life. I decide to seek out all the women, document by document, and see what the material tells us about them as people. What will I find out about them as individuals? Will I discover that they were mere figureheads? Should they be remembered in their own right? Or has history forgotten them because they were only important because they were linked to famous men? I know that the best place to go is the National Cultural Institutes, to speak to the people who are the keepers and curators, archivists and librarians, the holders of Irish memory. In search of more information on Margaret Pierce and the other women, I begin with the trip to Dublin's Kildare Street, Ireland's National Library for over 100 years. It's home to an estimated 10 million items. And those 10 million items encompass the things that you'd think of when you think of a library. Books, newspapers, magazines, periodicals. We have all of those. What we call ephemera, things like posters and playbills and and propaganda. I've come to meet Catherine McSharry, Deputy Director at the National Library of Ireland. I'm also the Head of Development and the Development Department is tasked with promoting awareness and support for the National Library across a whole series of dimensions. So our communications, our marketing, our promotion, and basically bringing the knowledge that the National Library is for everybody, to everybody. In some ways, the National Library never changes. And that's because the vision of a library is intrinsically radical. The idea that everybody would have access to information and be able to share it and be part of it is a fundamentally radical idea. You don't have to be rich or significant or have a major academic position to be allowed to access and to be part of creating that story. It's an exciting time to be working in Ireland's National Library. As we walk, Catherine tells me over the next number of years, another major focus for the National Library will be the transformation of its building and the transformation of how they reach out and provide access for the public. So the building we're in here now is our Victorian building on Kildare Street. It's about to see a major transformation where we have converted the Victorian book stacks, which were totally unsuitable for our books and which are now in safe storage, into public space. So we'll have more exhibitions, more drop-in space, um, more space to make the library feel like this destination at the centre of Dublin which is for everybody, welcoming, inclusive and a place of ongoing learning. Catherine leads us now into the National Library's reading room. So the National Library buildings, uh, the new building opened in 1890 and this gorgeous reading room with its beautiful dome, its fabulous skylight, the wonderful cherubs around the walls, it has welcomed millions and millions of famous and ordinary people, if you like, over those years to think, to learn, to remember and to create. We have our manuscripts reading room where researchers come in and look through letters and diaries and archives of various kinds. We have our photographic reading room and we also have more than 125,000 items digitised. And so in effect, that makes the whole world the reading room, wherever you are, whenever you are. As we walk, we talk of Margaret Pierce. I'm eager to find out what Catherine has selected. As she shows me a letter written by Margaret Pierce, she tells me her impression of her and her two sons. Obviously, she was animated to an enormous degree after their deaths by the sense of carrying on their legacy. 
I picked this item out because it's from 1919, um, two years before the election in 1921. Catherine describes the letter she is holding from Margaret Pierce to Daily Clark. It's in a special cover to protect it into the future. I can read a letter which is slipped inside this transparent plastic sleeve. I can turn it over and I don't have to touch it. It's also the case that the plastic moves with the paper. So it's kind of keeping it safe as, uh, even as it moves. So it's unlikely to tear or to be damaged. She starts by saying, my dear Daly, I hope you received my little present all right. My poor, lonely little soldiers. So she's writing this letter to Daly Clark, who is 16, because his mother is in prison. Kathleen Clark is in prison in 1919 when Margaret Pierce writes her this letter. And what that shows us is the connections between the families and the people, the women who were elected in 1921. And in this tender, kind, thoughtful letter from Margaret Pierce to the son of her friend who is in prison, we see the way that those connections have bound those women together. And I love this kind of item because it speaks both to the political context, but it also shows us the lived life of people in the background, going about their lives, remembering their friend's son, sending them a present. And it's really important, I think, when we when we try and put ourselves back into those times 100 years ago, that we remember that people were going about all this ordinary life alongside their political selves. The letter does give us a sense of Mrs. Pierce as a mother figure. If you were not aware of Daly's age, you might think she was speaking to a younger child. The reference to soldiers is interesting. We know that this is a time of war. The campaign of independence has been ongoing since 1916. These women were bonded in a common cause. Daly's mother, Kathleen Clark, another of the women elected, had been imprisoned. She's now described as a radical nationalist. How would Kathleen Clark have described herself in 1921? I'm thinking again, not of descriptive words for her character. Her personality emerges vividly from her memoir edited by Helen Nitton in 1991. But for those of you who don't know that book, and what I'm trying to think about is what would be in her election flyer that would come through the letterbox. What would she have included in her own brief biographical note in 1921? Perhaps something like this. Mrs. Tom Clark, formerly Kathleen Daly of Limerick, widow of the leader of the 1916 Rising, Tom Clark, who had served 15 years in Portland Prison, a Fenian. I'm sure that would be included, as would also allow her mention her father and her uncle John Daly. Her husband and her only brother, Ned Daly, were among those executed for their part in the 1916 Rising. A member of Commonamon Central Branch, Kathleen had formed the Irish Prisoners' Dependence Fund in 1916. The mother of three, Daly, Tom Jr. and Emmett. She was arrested in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising and again in 1918 when she was arrested and held in prison in England. I think she would mention her children. I wonder if she would have also mentioned that she was a proprietor of two shops. Although I'm not sure even in May of 1921 that they continued to be operational because of the constant raids and looting. I think she would have mentioned that in speeches. 
but maybe not in a in a written flyer. Mm. She would not have mentioned her role in the Doyle courts as conflict was ongoing. As these biographical notes are taking shape of both candidates, it can be argued that they're being seen through the prism of the men in their lives. I wonder if this is fair. Looking at women's history, the difficulty is always finding the documentation, the first-hand account, their voices. I make my way to the National Museum in its home in Collins Barracks, where Brenda Malone, curator, is there to meet me. I'm the curator of military history, uh, arms and armour, flags, banners, transport, all of that kind of thing. I also have worked very extensively on the Easter Week collection, which is what we're looking at today. Um, That's where the objects that we're talking about today have come from. We do have a lot of items in the collection. It's about 15,000 items strong, and it's a really big mix of different types of material in it. So not just material as in terms of physical material, but also different types of material in terms of what they mean. So we have a lot of political stuff, but we also have an awful lot of items that I would consider to be more commemorative or memorial or even relics. Brenda has selected items from women elected in 1921. Immediately, she identifies a link between many of the artefacts relating to these women. We first look at Margaret Pierce, but the pieces don't relate to her own service or her own political career. They only relate to the commemoration of her two boys, Willie and Patrick. And they're meant as a donation of remembrance. So Margaret has given these items to the National Museum of Ireland in order for us to take on that responsibility of remembering her boys who gave their lives for Ireland. These artefacts, the very famous poem, a mother that Patrick wrote to her from Clemenum, the last letter that the two of them wrote to her from Clemenum before their execution. And then other artefacts as well, such as his uh, Patrick's sword stick, which she had and she gave to another uh, a friend of the family in commemoration of Patrick Pierce. We suffer in their coming and their going, and though I grudge them not, I weary, weary of the long sorrow, and yet I have my joy. My sons were faithful and they fought. When it comes to the other women who were in the second doll, there is not so much because what we see there is what usually happens when it comes to women who donate items to the museum is that the items they donate are actually commemorating their loved ones rather than themselves. So it's, it's quite a typical thing that we see in this collection. Brenda takes out items to show me. We talk about how this is one of the most poignant pieces of material the collection holds. It's a letter written to Madge Daly, Kathleen's older sister, and another written to Catherine Clark herself, both by Major Lennon, military governor of Kilmainham Jail, then known as Kilmainham Detention Barracks, a disused prison which had been used to hold prisoners who had taken part in the 1916 Rising, including the women, and was the place where the leaders of the Rising were shot by firing squad. And it says, Madam, referring to your request for the body of the late Edward Daly, I am directed to inform you that it is regretted that your request cannot be granted. This applies also in the case of the late T.J. Clark request made by Mrs. Clark. So what is happening here is that Kathleen, the wife of Thomas Clark and uh, also the sister of Ned Daly and Madge Daly, have asked for the bodies of Ned and Tom to be returned to them for burial after the execution and they have been refused. And of course, we know they never do receive the bodies of their loved ones for burial. But what Kathleen does receive in lieu of her husband's body for burial is the contents of his pocket. And those contents uh, included just a pencil, 
uh, a little book of stamps, just ordinary stamps. And also the um, glasses case. But when Brenda opens the case, we can see that there are no glasses inside. Which makes you wonder, well, his glasses were obviously on his face as he was executed. And we don't know what happened to his glasses after that, maybe there with his body. But it's a very emotional thing to hold these things, to to have some kind of inkling uh, of how it must have felt for Kathleen to have uh, lost her husband and now she, all she has in his place is a book of stamps, a pencil and an empty glasses case. I think the title of curator, it's also known as keeper. And when I speak to Brenda Malone, I think of the importance of her role. Her love of her work shines through as she conveys her wealth of experience, her understanding of the act of remembrance, of commemoration. And I think what this collection really shows, and especially in the case of these women, that um, very often the curator is inheriting a collection. So these objects have already been curated before they came anywhere near the museum. The women who chose them to give to the museum made that decision in order to do that. So they were the first curators of these arts. So they were the first owners and the first curators in the decision-making of what to do with them uh, in order should they go into an archive, gallery, museum, library. They made that decision. I now go to the National Archives of Ireland to speak with Elizabeth McAvoy, the archivist with responsibility for education and outreach, to see what she's been able to unearth of these eight women. I ask her firstly to tell me what she does. The main function of the Education and Outreach Unit is to highlight awareness of the National Archives across a wide variety of platforms. And we promote the message that our doors are open to everyone who wishes to use us, uh, to visit us and to use our services. Well, the National Archives is the leading institution of memory uh, in Ireland. Uh, We are the official records of central government and we collect, manage and preserve the public record of Ireland, i.e. the records of the, the Irish state. We provide free access to your records in our reading room and across a wide variety of online media through our websites and across our social media platforms. The women I'm looking for were politicians, and this archive contains a lot of official documentation. So I asked Elizabeth about collections that contain personal information. So an example of that would be a a very rich collections of 19th and 20th century tithe and land valuation records, the complete censuses of 1901 and 1911, as well as wills, parish records, estate collections, and, and so on. So from the point of view of exploring your family history, we're certainly a good place to start because we have a veritable treasure trove of, of records in relation to people's family tree. So if you are interested in learning more about the history of these women, approach it in a sense as you would were you conducting an investigation on your own family tree for example, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, and so on. Approach it as a family tree inquiry. And then you can branch out into the more administrative side of of things because these were prominent women. Um, So it's not a surprise that there are government files on them uh, as a result of the direction that their careers took, the decisions that they made, again, pro or anti-treaty, and so on. 
Mary McSweeney is one of those who's known in the public consciousness, I think, to events that happened after May of 1921. Her well-known opposition to the Articles of Agreement for a treaty between Great Britain and Ireland. Her opposition to the Irish Free State in the years leading up to her death in 1942. But as I'm trying to get a sense of her in May of 1921, many of the items that Elizabeth has selected date to later on in her life. So we focus on an early item. Mary does not appear in the 1901 census because she was working in England at the time as a teacher. But on the death of her mother in 1904, Mary returns from England to Ireland to help look after the family. So she appears in the 1911 census and she is living in um, her a resident of a house in Black Rock, in County Cork. Mary is Moira uh, Nixivna. She's 39 years of age. She's a Catholic, a head of the family, and she is a teacher. She's a Moontor. Her brothers, Terence and Sean, so Thorlock, uh, Thorlock and John, uh, are also living with her. Um, Terence is 32 and Sean is 24. Um, and Terence who, of course, goes on to become uh, mayor of Cork. He is 32 years of age and he is also down as a, a Moonthor. He can read and write and he is Roman Catholic. Again, I find myself thinking about the figures that surround Mary McSweeney, not Mary McSweeney herself. I think again of her election handbill, if she'd been asked to create one in 1921. She'd been involved in electioneering for her brother Terence when he was elected to the first Dáil Éireann. I think her biography would contain a reference to her brother. During her 49 years, what would she have highlighted? It's so hard to try and be objective, not subjective. Remembering the discipline of writing and being factual. So... Mary McSweeney, member of the Munster Women's Franchise League, the Gaelic League, Sinn Féin and Common Amon, a member of the executive. Following the death of her brother, Lord Mayor Terence McSweeney, on hunger strike in 1920, she gave evidence to the hearings of the American Commission for Conditions in Ireland and toured the US fundraising for the Irish Republic in 1921. She would have included something about her profession. So, yes, I think it would be fair to assume that she would have included that in her political bio. As in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising, she was dismissed from her teaching post. So, yes, I think it would be fair to assume that she would have included that in her political bio. As in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising, she had been dismissed from her teaching post. So, she had to set up her own school. So, I think she would definitely have contained a line about establishing her own school in Cork. St. Itis. In the National Library, her voice is captured in a document selected by Catherine McSharry and dates to shortly after her election. When we look at this letter from Mary McSweeney, which is dated the 10th of October 1921 um, from Four Belgrave Place in Cork. Again, I'm looking at, holding carefully in my hand, a piece of history and also a piece of someone's story. What I really enjoy about a letter like this, um, which Mary is sending to her friends in America, is that it brings together her political preoccupations 
and her professional ones, alongside her sense of ordinary friendship and good wishes. In the letter, Mary writes, I am up to my eyes, busy all the week with my school, which has suffered considerably from my absence, and occupied in the evenings with political meetings in some shape or form. And on Sundays, dragged out to make speeches. So you see, there is no rest for the wicked. One of the interesting things about someone like Mary McSweeney is that she's a professional woman making her, um, making her living. She's running a school as well as being a TD and involved in politics. And that was probably no easier in 1921 than it is now, is to bring those, those competing things together. And also, of course, keeping in touch with friends and so on. I like to see this evidence that a woman like this is managing to keep all of these things going at the same time and that the extraordinary upheaval and change in the country still sits alongside the necessity and the desire to stay in touch with friends and and keep those kind of bonds of connection going. We know that these women knew each other. All had been affected directly by the events of those years. They were united in experience, united in grief. Is there any place we can find them together? Then Catherine shows me a photograph showing Catherine Clark, Con Demarkovich, Margaret Pierce and Kate O'Callaghan. There's a fabulous photograph showing four of those women together. All of those items are items that have been digitised. So there's so much material relating to these women that is available online. And that means, in a sense, you can get your virtual hands on them anytime. Um, It's also the case that when we are open, any of our material that is not digitised can be consulted in our manuscripts reading room, if it's original manuscript material, or in our main reading room. And in those instances, a reader gets a ticket, books, and comes in to, to view that material. So anybody can do that. Universal access is also possible with the census. The National Archives of Ireland holds the original documents. Anyone, anywhere can look them up on the web. Kate O'Callaghan, best known to the public by her married name, came into public prominence in 1921. What does the census tell us about her before 1921? Elizabeth shows me a census record dated to 10 years before. Kate Murphy uh, is caught in Nivarahu. She's living in Balnacara in Limerick. She is living there with her sister and her brother-in-law, her sister Moira and her brother-in-law Dermot. And the, uh, the census return itself is filled in entirely in Irish. Uh, and it's done with a beautiful hand, beautiful Irish script. You can see that Kate Murphy is originally from Cork, working as a college lecturer. We, of course, know that that's Mary Immaculate College. She and her sister Moira and brother-in-law Dermot are all involved in the Gaelic League. What we don't know is if she knew her future husband at the point when the census was filled in in 1911, when it became an official document that would be stored and held back by law for 100 years. So I speculate on how Kate O'Callaghan would have written her political biography, her election message to the people of Limerick City and Limerick East. I think it would have been as follows. Widow of Michael O'Callaghan, former Lord Mayor of Limerick, who was fatally wounded in their home, on the night of the 7th of March 1921, which became known as the Curfew Murders. I think she would have mentioned that she had published the account, The Case of Michael O'Callaghan. I heard Michael say, no, no, 
just twice, as the men advanced after us in the hall. I caught at their hands as they tried to get me out of the way. There was a struggle for a second, and the man on my right, the man with the clear glasses and the blue eyes, freed his right hand and fired over my shoulder. I turned to see Michael stagger from the hall table, against which I had pushed him, and fall onto the mat at the foot of the stairs. What more would she say? What more did she need to say? This publication was her voice, her strength and conviction. It was so important to the campaign of independence that she made the case of her evidence, her first-hand account, that the assassins were members of the Crown forces. She became the president of Limerick coming on in the aftermath of her husband's death. She probably would have included that. I then turned my attention to the woman who was not elected because of association with any man in the movement, Dr. Ada English. Elizabeth takes me to look at her census returns. Of course, those that survive are accessible to us are the ones from 1901 and 1911. Ada English is elected in May 1921 as a, a TD. She is born in Cahir Savin in 1875, but in the 1901 census that we hold here in the National Archives, she's aged 23. She is a medical student and is living at 13 Earls Southside in Mullingar in Westmeath with her mother, Nora. The year after her birth, the Medical Qualification Act had removed the legal restriction to prevent women from studying. Her father was what was known as an apothecary and he had established his business in Mullingar as English's medical hall. By 1911, Ada's studies were completed, as the census shows us. She's a doctor of medicine, so she has qualified. She's a doctor of medicine and has literally moved around the corner because she's now in eight Earls Southside in Mullingar. She was a number 13 in, in the 1901 census. And this time she's living with her, pat, her father Patrick and her sister Lillian. Ada went home to be recorded with her family, both in 1901 and 1911. Technically, she should have been listed as a visitor, as she was no longer a resident with them. In 1911, she was the resident psychiatrist in Balnuslow's County Galway's District Lunatic Asylum. For our exploration, it's important to understand Dr. Ada English and how she would have characterised herself if she'd been asked to produce election literature in 1921. I surmise it would be something along the lines of the following. Dr. Ada English, Gaelic League, Sinn Féin, Cumannamon Galway, and member of the executive. Arrested for being in the possession of seditious literature. She was sentenced to nine months in Galway jail in 1921. Medical officer with the Irish Volunteers active in the 1916 Rising and during the Campaign of Independence. Catherine McSherry from the National Library locates a sample ballot paper for Dr. Ada English from the collection and shows me the item on her device. One of the things that digitisation allows the National Library to do is to take really fragile, flimsy bits of paper, leaflets, ballot papers, playbills, posters, and make them available online. And also it means that we don't have to handle them. So there's quite a lot of material that it's lovely to see and to hold in your hand. And quite a lot of the time you don't really need to, as long as you have access to a high quality um, copy. And what we're looking at here is a sample voting paper on our online catalogue, digitised. And on it, we see names for a number of candidates 
who were going to be elected to the NUI, the National University of Vinyl Panel, or putting their names forward for election. And one of them is English. And English, not as a description, but as a person's surname. And un- underneath it says, Adeline English of the Asylum, Ballinasloe, Bachelor of Medicine. And something that I think is amazing about an item like this is in that tiny little snippet, that tiny little description of someone going forward for election, we see so much. We see that the person we're talking about is a qualified doctor. Um, Ed English was a psychiatrist, in fact. Her address is the asylum in Ballinasloe. So that's where she was practicing professionally, was in the asylum in Ballinasloe. And again, we see this interesting idea that somebody like Ada English is carrying on a very full, very demanding professional life alongside her political activities. And I love that. I admire it. It it inspires me, the idea that these women were living these incredibly full and, and significant lives. A hundred years on, thanks to Dr. Ada English's biographer, Dr. Brendan Kelly, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at University College Dublin, we've come to know her in her professional capacity. So a modern entry would, of course, include the following. Dr. Ada English, 46, Psychiatrist, Balnasloe, County Galway, District Lunatic Asylum, where she had served for the previous 17 years. A graduate of the Catholic University School of Medicine, she worked in the Mater, Richmond Asylum and the Children's Hospital Temple Street, Dublin. In 1914, she was appointed the first statutory lecturer in mental diseases at University College Galway. Her career was extraordinary. A qualified doctor, a psychiatrist, a political figure. And it's wonderful to have the opportunity, I think, through the decade of centenaries to to bring some of these people who were so well-known and significant in their own day back into the public consciousness. The other election candidate is the one that doesn't need an introduction. Even if you have a passing knowledge of Irish history, you will know her name. There's an extant election flyer from the 1918 election in the holdings of the National Museum of Ireland. It has her full title, Constance de Markovich. Later, she used Madame Markovich. The contents of this election flyer are interesting, as it speaks to potential voters about her conversion to Catholicism. It does not give any outline of her life to that point. Perhaps she was too well known for that. Or maybe they wanted to gloss over the fact that she was a member of the landed gentry. The fact that she was an artist, an actress, may feature in modern biographies, but we have an actual election flyer from the 1918 general election. And it just focuses on her conversion to Catholicism. One just imagines that this handbill was being distributed outside masses. She was elected in 1918 the only woman to be returned in the general election to the House of Commons. All those who had campaigned for women's suffrage in England, Scotland and Wales, she was the one elected for St. Patrick's Ward, Dublin, She was an abstentionist who did not take her seat and became a member of Doyle Aaron. Like someone so well known, she would not have needed much of an introduction. Her election description could have read along these lines, the only woman sentenced to death for her part in the 1916 Rising, the only woman elected in the general election of 1918, the first cabinet minister when she became Secretary of Labour 
in the first Dáil Éireann, when it was a prescribed organisation. So she spent much of the period 1916 to 1921 imprisoned for her part in the campaign of Irish independence. I speak of how she is the best-known woman of the period to Helen Bowman, Head of Education and Outreach in the National Museum of Ireland. Before talking to you, myself and some of the um, guides that work in the museum, bringing groups around, we were chatting about this. And one thing that everybody said to me is everybody knows Countess Markowitz. So when we take groups into the museum, one of the things we want to do um, at the start is to kind of establish what kind of prior knowledge people have. I have to say that's another impact of the decade is that the school groups that we've brought in in particular or any groups, they're so well informed. But what we often do is we sort of ask, well, who do you know? Who, what figures do you know? And um, if we if we ask about any women, the, any female figures that you know, Countess Markowitz is the one that everybody says they know. Um, and often it's the only name they have. And why that is, I suspect that we're kind of only at the beginning of uncovering or also platforming some of those other women that you don't hear so much about. Countess Markovitz would feature in, in the tour Proclaiming a Republic and she would also feature in a tour that we have uh, just started to work on called Bonnets, Bandoliers and Ballot Papers, looking at the changing role of women in the early decades of the 20th century. I watch as an item has been lifted from its protective covering from an archival box on the table. There are a huge range of boxes of many sizes and shapes a vast collection of items belonging to Markovich, which the museums hold. Among their collections are her watercolours painted in prison, her possessions, pieces of clothing she wore, badges, letters and a diary. But what do these objects tell us about her? Helen has made her selection. The bandolier, I suppose, of the tour title um, refers to one that was on display in the Proclaiming a Republic exhibition that belonged to Countess Markovitz. That's here in front of me now. And the bandolier itself is a kind of a, a leather belt that is worn across the body, across your sort of one of your shoulders and down. And it would have little pockets, um, little leather pockets all along the belt um, with, with buttons that close. And um, the, the pockets would typically hold um, munitions and bullets for a gun. The education programme is designed to let visitors get a real sense of artefacts. From the earliest years of the museum, guides or instructors have been key to the visitor experience. Even 100 years ago, the museum staff had items that they used for instruction for visitors. As we look at the items, objects in glass cases, with links to a historic person, I want to know how they get the public's engagement. And Helen tells me how. While we're looking at Countess Markovitz's bandolier belt in the exhibition case, we have a replica that we kind of hand around and allow people to have a tactile experience with that so that they're feeling the weight of it. Sometimes, you know, people put it, actually wear it to get a feel of what it's like. So it's sort of bringing you closer to that experience. And I suppose it's, it is a very key object. According to accounts, um, Countess Markowitz made a very striking figure um, during the Easter week um, wearing a, a Citizen Army uniform jacket and a feathered woman's hat and her bandolier draped across her body. So she apparently looked very striking and very sort of military. And there's kind of descriptions to her cutting that sort of striking figure in a uniform. And it, it I suppose it seems that it was very important to her to look the part, you know, in, in the rising. 
And when our guides give tours, we point out something I think that's quite interesting, that not all volunteers before the rising, you know, when they were out practicing their manoeuvres together at weekends, not all of them could afford to have a full uniform. And we discuss Countess Markovitz. There's a photograph of her as well, standing in her uniform, looking really smart. And she's holding her gun at her side. And it's again, just, I suppose, making that point particularly with younger students, that not everybody could afford to dress like this. And she could. She was a wealthy woman who was able to kit herself out in this way. The wealth of material that the museum has really helps to give a sense of the person of Con Markovich, or some people know her, the Countess. Collections all over the country have items relating to this woman. So much was preserved that belonged to her. I think of the collections in her family home in Lissadell, County Sligo, items in the public record office, Northern Ireland. I can think of items in Kilmainham Jail, in local museums, but the National Museum of Ireland's collection contains some items that really give you a sense of who she was. Brenda Malone makes her selection. One of the first items she picks has the words of her as a young woman when she was Constance or Con Gorbuth. As I look through the boxes, I think there are a few items that kind of show us a little bit about Markovich's development over the years. So one of the first things I'm just going to handle here is her diary. So this is her diary from 1894. So she's quite a young woman in this. Um, and it is filled with the concerns of a young, wealthy Anglo-Irish family's daughter at the time. Other items that we have are much more personal um, and they come from a variety of sources. So one of my favourites is the uh, Ingen and a Heron badge that belonged to the Countess. I'm just taking that out of the bag. So it's in the shape of a Tara brooch. Very plain on the back. But this was actually given as an award to a boy called Tom Crimmins in 1913 who jumped into a lake and to search for the body of a boy uh, who drowned during a Fina Aaron excursion up in the mountains. When it comes to Markovich, it's her involvement with Fina Aaron, which was very important to her. So for example, we have this shawl. It's in that burnt orange, the traditional burnt orange color. So it was worn by the Countess and on the side here, you can see, there's a hand-stitched emblem of the Fina Erin. So you can see the pipe with the sunburst. Other small personal items that I find very moving is uh, this small crucifix, which uh, Countess Markovich held on her deathbed and was holding as she died. So that stayed in the family and eventually came to the museum. And it is in a box with other things that she found precious, like um, like the tag from her dog's collar. Poppet was her dog. And this was the tag from the collar that just gave the address in case you ever get lost. So those little things that make people so much more human, even though they lived and died 100 or so years ago. Poppet, her dog, is mentioned in lots of places. The National Library has a set of images of Markovich taken in Waterford in 1917. These studio portraits found their way into a society magazine and Poppet is in the pictures sitting on a high stool right beside her, a black cocker spaniel. There is a copy of her will, now in the military archives, which was written before the rising, giving instructions on who was to take Poppet. 
Stories of the dog following her everywhere were often repeated. Brenda and I discussed this and she reflects on why these items were collected. It's amazing to think really that all of these artefacts are the kind of thing that we all personally would have in our families as a remembrance of our own loved ones. Um, so they're not all that different to what you or I would have in, in, in remembrance of um, of our parents or grandparents or other family members. So um, it's it, they can be quite emotional to have such objects um, and to have the responsibility of caring for them in the way that those who donated them wanted them to be cared for. As I walk away, I have a lot to reflect on. It was such an interesting afternoon. I really urge you, if you are interested in some aspect of Irish history and you want to get up close and personal with these items, make an appointment and have this experience. It really makes the people of the past feel like real people. Turning my attention to the two women elected in Northern Ireland, in many ways they follow Constance de Markovic as the second and third woman elected by the Irish people by popular vote. Votes were cast and they won. Both women, Julia McMordy and Deira Chichester, were both very well known to their constituents. And looking at the newspapers at the time, I want to see what was in the public domain about them in the years leading up to 1921. Once again, we see these women are always discussed in the context of the men in their lives. So their biographies should reflect that. Julia McMordy, CBE, Vice President of the Ulster Women's Unionist Council. Mrs. Julia McMordy was the daughter of Sir William Gray, shipbuilder of Hartlepool, County Durham. The widow of MP Robert James McMordy, Lady Mayoress of Belfast from 1910 to 1914, President of the St. John's Voluntary Aid Detachment Belfast, the first woman elected to Belfast City Council, member of the Order of the British Empire, and in 1919 became CBE, Commander of the British Empire. I'm not sure if her biography would have mentioned her children. I think it's a modern convention to report people's ages. In the past, it would have been private. Back in the National Archives of Ireland, Elizabeth McVoy recommends searching for reference to Julia McMordy in the census returns, as that would assist with her age and some family information. When we talk about the, the census returns of 1901 and 1911, we should remember, of course, that it's an all-island and all-Ireland census because, of course, it's pre-partition. So the two women who were elected uh, in, in Ulster, Julia McMordy and Dara Chichester, um, while there's no reference to uh, Dehra Chichester in the census, there is an entry or a return for Julia McMordy. Julia McMordy, who is married to Robert James uh, McMordy, she is 51 in the census of 1911. That makes her 61 when she was elected in 1921. What else does the entry tell us? Interestingly, one of her children, her daughter is Elsie Gray McMordy. Uh, Gray, her middle name, was Julia McMordy's maiden name. So a little bit like earlier where we had um, one of Kathleen Clark's children having her maiden name as his name. Here we have Elsie Gray McMordy, Gray being her, her mother's maiden name. And she's 22 years of age and also lives with a family in Newtonards Road. I'm curious to find out more about Julia McMordy and try and piece together the strands of her story. 
I make contact with Neve Baker at the Ulster Museum, Belfast. Their new exhibition opens on the 24th of May, the 100th anniversary of the election. I'm really excited to meet the curator and hear about the Collecting the Past, Making the Future exhibition. My name is Neve Baker. I am the curator of the Making the Future project at National Museums Northern Ireland. The Making the Future project is a Peace War funded project funded through the special EU programme body. And it's a partnership with the National Museums Northern Ireland and the Nerve Centre. And it's been running since 2018. The exhibition is called Collecting the Past, Making the Future, Marking Centenaries 2021. And as I say, it's the final showcase exhibition for the project at the Ulster Museum in Belfast. The exhibition runs through two galleries in the museum. In the first gallery, we deal with the subject of home rule to partition, looking at the periods 1912 to 1935. We're looking at subjects such as the home rule crisis, the taking up of arms and the formation of the UVF and the Irish volunteers. And we have collections in relation to all of those subjects. We have the Women's Declaration on display from 1912, which shows the text of the declaration made by the Ulster Women's Unionist Council, signed by the loyal women of Ulster against Home Rule. So in this section, we're very much looking at how new hopes after partition inspired people to build new identities. So we look at the subject of politics and conflict, economy, culture, society, One of two women elected to the first parliament in Northern Ireland for South Belfast was Julia McMorty, who was um, active until 1925. She was also the first female high sheriff of Belfast in 1928, which I find like, a very exciting title. Um, but we don't really have very much material relating to Julia McMorty within our collection. So again, an area to explore and expand for, for future acquisition. But we had one item which I travelled down to the store last week to have a look at and it was a bound volume that actually, when I luckily enough find it, um, it says on the front of it, photographs of the illuminated certificates of honorary freedom of city of Belfast and it dates to 1914 and these were photographs taken by, by Hogg. And there are a series of photographs of these certificates, but one relates to Julia McMorty. And I'll just read out what it says on it because it gives a little bit of an insight into her. And again, it might be something that's useful for us when we're building on our engagement programmes around this for, for our partition related strand of the project. So it says, this is to certify that Miss Julia McMorty of Cabin Hill, Knock, Belfast, was on the 23rd day of January the 14th, elected and admitted an honorary Burgess of the city of Belfast on the occasion of her husband's election for the fifth consecutive year to the office of Lord Mayor of the city, and as a mark of the appreciation of the citizens for the manner in which she has discharged the responsible duties of Lady Mayoress, and for the deep and practical interest she has taken in the relief of suffering and in the promotion of the welfare of the people of Belfast. So this this is obviously in relation to the work that she did during the First World War. She was president of the St John Voluntary Aid Detachments in Belfast. So it's obviously in relation to um, the work that she did with them and providing nursing care in Belfast at that time. Last year, Belfast City Council actually installed a plaque, a memorial plaque um, in City Hall as a tribute to the nurses of the First World War. This item really brings Julia McMordy to life. It's a tribute to her. I actually think for the first time in this journey that the object encapsulates the person in a real way, her contribution and her public service. In 1914, she and her husband got the freedom of the city of Belfast together and she was the second woman on the role of freedom. 
It brings to mind something I read in one of the newspapers, which reported Julia McMorty's words when she was selected to stand for election. She wished they could have got a better representative, but as they had honoured her with their confidence, she could assure them that she would do her best for the Unionist case in South Belfast. Although she was not an Ulster woman by birth, she could claim, perhaps, a better Ulster woman than some who were born in the province. With no reference for dear Chichester, I need to find out more. I do an online search on Ancestry.com and find her living in Sussex with her husband and two children and six staff in the English census in 1911. By 1914, in newspaper reports, I see that they were living in Belfast. I know that she is best known as Dame Deera Parker, as she was a major figure in Northern Irish politics in later life. But I want to see what can be discovered about her when she was presented to the electorate, when she first stood in May of 1921. As we move through the galleries to see the item belonging to her, we discuss, like so many women, she's known by multiple names. It's supposed that her name warrants an explanation, Dira. She was born in Dira Doon in India, now modern-day Pakistan, and her parents named her after the place of her birth. Her maiden name was Kerr Fisher. And history, of course, remembers her as Dame Dira Parker due to the title she received later, and her name changed again because she had a second marriage. As we walk, we discuss that she was widowed just months after she was elected. I felt I was reading it in real time when I came across a small article saying that she had rushed to London as her husband had fallen ill in December of 1921. Of course, within seconds, I was able to find out that her husband had got pneumonia and died. In the partition section of the exhibition from 1920 to approximately 1930s, um, we have the address from Dame Dara Parker within the exhibition. So this is in the section that looks at kind of state formation on both sides of the border. So formation of Northern Ireland and the formation of the Irish Free State. So what's interesting is that this dress um, sits alongside all of this material, but also alongside um, a, a banner that we had conserved for the exhibition produced by the Ulster ex-servicemen's calling people to come and vote in, in the election on the 24th of May, 1921. So uh, Dara Parker was the longest serving female MP in the House of Commons in Northern Ireland and was first elected as a member of Parliament for Londonderry in 1921 in the, in the Northern Ireland general election. So it's fantastic to have this dress of hers present and we were very aware as we went along within the exhibition um, that we wanted to represent women within, within the exhibition where we could and where the collections allowed us to do that. So um, probably a couple of years ago at this stage, our costume curator pointed this dress out to me. She'd come across it in, in the collection um, and told me it belonged to Dara Parker. And instantly I was kind of thrilled, um, not having known that it existed in the collection. And it was sort of one of the very first objects on the, the, the object list for, for the exhibition. It is literally there to represent her. It was too It was too good an item to leave out. So whilst her dress is itself from the 1950s um, and we didn't know that until we physically looked at the dress and found a, a little label on it that indicated that um it, it was just too important to not have it because um you know we have so many men represented in the exhibition um for all the wonderful things that they were involved in and as I say it was really important to try where we could to get the story of women in there um, and as you know it's probably it's a difficult enough thing to do because 
sometimes the collections just aren't there because that wasn't a priority for them at that time. So we can only now retrospectively collect um, and tell the stories of these women who perhaps haven't been represented in the collection. So when we came across the Dara Parker dress um, with our costume creator, um, you know, it was instantly something that I wanted to use because, um, you know, we, there was a, a dress that had been worn by the lady who was one of only two elected to the first parliament of Northern Ireland. So, so it was really important for us to, to include it. I still need to find out more about Dara Chichester in May of 1921. My search through the newspapers uncovers a lot of personal sadness. The death of her only son, aged 17, in January of 1920. Although there were official condolences, I don't think this would have been part of her canvassing. In later years, she was referred to in a newspaper as an American. I know that she was married in Chicago in 1901, and her father is listed on her marriage notice as being of Chicago. Elsewhere, he's stated to be Irish. And her mother, in her wedding notice, is described as from Castle Rock, Londonderry, Ireland. Dira was educated in Chicago and also in Germany, but she must have spent time in Ireland. I'm really falling into the rabbit hole of research, trying to work out how she would have been portrayed to the people when she stood for election in May of 1921. This is what I'm finally going to settle on. Wife of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Peel Dawson Spencer Chichester MP, who was awarded the office of the British Empire for her work during the First World War when she established the Ulster Women's Gift Fund. She was Vice President of the St. John's Volunteer Aid Detachment and a member of the Ulster Women's Unionist Council. Also within the um, Collecting the Past, Making the Future exhibition, we look at the impact and legacy of partition over the past 100 years. So part of the challenge with this exhibition was that um, we had a we had a wealth of material that we wanted to put on display to show the course of 100 years. Um, and across two of the art galleries of the Ulster Museum, that was that was a challenge for us. And um, we worked with a fantastic design team to come up with the idea of creating an object wall. I want to give you a word picture, if I can. You can see in the exhibition, there is a wall. Objects are on display through apertures or windows. Alongside these windows, there are audio excerpts. Neve tells me about how they collected these pieces. Within the impact and legacy section, alongside each of the windows, we have audio excerpts that we've collected from participants from our Making the Future programme. I think the people of Northern Ireland clash over their identity because history taught them to. So we ran two bespoke engagement programmes around collecting the past, making the future, around the subject of partition. Which has now become entangled in our government and our societal structure. We looked at objects in this section relating to politics, economy, culture and society. We gathered responses from our participants about the subjects, about individual objects. I also think it's time that we acknowledge that it's there, not in the same way as we have before. And it's absolutely fantastic to have those kind of voices of the next generation present as part of the exhibition with commentary on their thoughts on, on the objects and the themes explored within the exhibition. What I'm trying to say from all this is that my hope for Northern Ireland's future is that we can be honest about what happened to our nation and work to bring it to steadier ground. Neve Baker, along with Catherine McSharry of the National Library of Ireland, Brenda Malone and Helen Beaumont of the National Museum of Ireland, Elizabeth McAvoy of the National Archives of Ireland, have joined me in the search for the eight women who represented Ireland in May of 1921. We found the women's voices coming through. 
and we've captured something of their personal experiences. Each had a purpose and a standing. Their record seems true to their contributions. Julia McMorty, CBE, Dame Deera Parker's objects seem very fitting for the way of remembering their contributions. Markovich has a wealth of items and has a number of biographies. And I think that the public have come to know her very well. Dr. Ada English has a biography and people have come to know her through that. Catherine Clark's vast archive in the National Library of Ireland, the Burns Library in Boston College. And by writing her own story, she was able to record her version of events, including her belief that her husband was president of the Irish Republic as proclaimed in 1916, evidenced by his position on the proclamation. Kate O'Callaghan is a public figure because of her loss in March of 1921. And beyond those events and her subsequent career in Dáil Éireann, she is difficult to find. Mrs. Pierce is seen as the upholder of her son's memory. Her son's school is now a museum, St. Enda's Rathfarnham. The complexity of trying to piece together women's biography from fragments was touched on here. But what I learned from this exploration is how we are re-examining the past during the decade of centenaries. Those who work in the care of these records and objects can't help but be of the present. And the museums and archives and libraries and those who work there are always working for future generations. Conserving, preserving, collecting, making new exhibitions, spaces, opening up new conversations, new areas of research. Who knows what the future historians will take from the very same records in time to come? I often wonder if the women of the past could see what we conclude about them. Would they approve of our assessment of them? Or be amused because the records didn't survive? The conversations that have gone? The actions unrecorded? And most particularly, the memories that are gone forever? This was the first Manol 100 Centenary Podcast, part of the Decade of Centenaries programme. I hope you enjoyed our podcast and will tune in again.